Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 18 of Stoke the Fire. As always, we are your hosts, Matt Stocks and Jesse Leach. What's happening, Jesse? What's going on? 18, man. I can't believe it. It's crazy, right? It's just flying by, brother. <laughs> this podcast is now legally old enough to drink alcohol in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, yeah. Not That's where we're at. Um, we've got a super special guest today. And in a moment, my dear friend Jesse is going to tell you all about this person. And then we're going to invite him onto the show. Before we get to that, uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping. First of all, obviously, we want to reinforce one more time just our gratitude to everybody who listens and watches and supports this show, wherever you, you know, consume and engage from. We've got people all over the world tuning in and the messages that we get, the emails that we get, uh, just the response since day one. I know we, we kind of keep saying it, but it does bear repeating because we've been blown away by it, haven't we, dude? It's been incredible. Yeah, it really has been. And it's uh, one of those things that just kind of reassures you that you have some purpose when people write the messages they write us about just having those aha moments in your life when you really are able to reflect on your own life and relate to people we have on. It's a beautiful reciprocation of, of energy and community and conversation. So yeah, it's a blessing, man. And thank you to our guests as well, all of them. Every single person has brought you know, such wisdom and insight and truth, uh, and everybody's been so different. And without further ado, uh, Jesse Leach, my brother, my partner in podcasting, I'm so excited about this episode. I know you are too. So why don't you tell everybody about today's guest, who he is, and then we'll ask him to turn his camera on and join the show. Yeah. So this is a this is a a interesting and a, a sort of a climactic uh, point in my career, um, and I could say lots of things about this next guest, but I'm going to just get him on and let's just get going because it's going to be interesting and we're going to go deep with my father. Uh, Leroy Leach, or as some know him, the Reverend Dr. Leroy Leach. So, Dad, come on the show, brother. <laughs> what a trip. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> the good Reverend. Greetings. Lovely you? to meet you, sir. Same here. I've seen you before. I've heard of you. <laughs> All good things, I hope. <laughs> yeah, so far. Well, we won't talk about it right now because we're being recorded. <laughs> well, Likewise, as well, Jesse's told me so much about you, and there's so much that he wants to discuss that I'm excited to hear. Um, I'm sure there'll be things that you want to bring up and, and talk about as well. So, Jesse, I guess the right thing to do is hand over to you and ask, where would you like to begin? So when I first um, mentioned you coming on the show, 
your initial response was, of course, you know, you were into it. And then you sent this um, document that you had written uh, years ago, I believe. I, I remember seeing that a long time ago. How long ago did you write that document that you sent to me? Uh, maybe four years ago, maybe five okay. years ago. And it was really, uh, really poetic the way you kind of spelled it out and you're talking about your relationship with your father. So I guess for me, you being my father, um, maybe let's just start there. It seems like to me, and I know this for sure, but just to, to get the interview going here, your relationship with your father was, was rocky at best um, in the beginning, and you did your best to sort of maintain it as best you could uh, later in life. So I guess just start with that. What was it like growing up with a father who was there but not presently there because of his addiction to alcohol? How, how, how did you manage that, and how do you think that affected you as a human being and as a father even later in life? Yeah, in, in retrospect, you can kind of analyze it with the wisdom that you get about that whole relationship and comparing it to other relationships with other kids and their fathers and grown people. And um, my father was a great guy. Yeah, everybody knew him as a great guy. He was faithful, went to work every single day, but he'd come home every single night and drink his beer, Narragansett beer, and uh, just drink and go to bed. So he would sit at the table every night drink his beer. Occasionally, we'd go on a trip somewhere, and whenever we went, he'd sit and drink his beer and, you know, usually get drunk. <laughs> so, so my childhood was like, this guy was present, but he wasn't present for me personally as a young kid. And um, I knew him in a totally different way that everybody else knew him. So growing up, of course, it messes up your brain because you're trying to figure out what is a dad? How am I supposed to respond as a son? Where do I find that manly affection? So you go outside the house and you look for camaraderie, you know, and you find it in your neighborhood friends who also had alcoholic dads. <laughs> so we all kind of formed this little street posse when we were kids and went out and did what young kids do in neighborhoods, terrorizing neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that that because he was not present do you think that caused anger issues with you do you think that's kind of what pushed you into yeah. I mean, what, what you're essentially describing is you know and what i know is uh you eventually got into gang life for a little while there during the uh the 60s i believe right was it the 50s 60s yeah, 60s, uh, yeah probably the 60s is predominant we're elevated from the little tiny neighborhood group of guys and then to a a, a bigger posse they call them posses today neighborhood posses uh, the Rolf Street Boys, you know, the leather jackets, the slick back hair, and the knives and all that stuff. It's and not for, as dramatic, not as dramatic as it sounds. But yeah. For those people listening, this is um, Cranston, Rhode Island. This is the little uh, uh, state of Rhode Island where I spent a chunk of my childhood as well. Oddly enough, in the same house that you grew up in, which is yeah. a, whole, a whole other thing we can unpack. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so. You took to the streets to find sort of your identity. I mean, I can only imagine because I was spoiled with a father that was present, how that would have affected, you know, your mind state and, and I guess a sense of just wanting to belong somewhere. And you found that in your, yeah. your group of friends and your gang. Yeah, I did and I didn't because uh, my personality was such where I wasn't a gang guy. And uh, I was an artistic, creative kid, and I didn't know how to express that. And I wasn't guided in any way by that. And so I'd, I'd live kind of a, a lonely life in the midst of this little group of good friends. And so it was hard because you're trying to figure out, you know, 
if you're in if you're in a good family, you get guidance and your parents kind of help you along and find yourself. And so I had to try to find myself, but I got buried in a group of people who didn't care who I was. It just had to be part of that little group, you know. So you're forced to go to the gang fights and all that stuff. And you know. and so I, I became emotionally uh, screwed up as a kid, I think, very screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned in the uh, paper, and I know this to be true, that you had to pull your dad out of the bar sometimes. And you kind of yeah. saw it as like, a, well, people would see it as amusing or funny, but I'm sure to you that got pretty... Uh, that wore down on you a little bit in between you and, uh, you know, grandma being nervous and worried about him all the time. Yeah. I, I assume that just means you had, you grew up fast because of that. Yeah. And I had to be kind of a man and you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned it in the paper, but my back in the day, you used to be able to cash in the beer bottles. So my father would stash his empty beer bottles and my mother would have me go find them so we can cash them in and get some extra money, you know? And, um, that became kind of a, a sick little, game that I, we would play with my dad <laughs> so, but you know what you talk about pulling him out of the bar occasionally because he didn't come home uh that kind of thing too but my dad had a great sense of humor so it was always like this embarrassing funny guy who's you know making me feel like an idiot and a jerk and uh one time he fell down cracked his head open bleeding all over the place and i had a my mother and I had to take him to the hospital and he's cracking jokes. It was a Catholic hospital, cracking jokes with the nuns. And I thought he was so funny. He's like, no, dude, it was, you know, it just made me even more angry. And how old yeah. were you when this was going on? This type of stuff. I was a teen, young teenager. Yeah. By that time. Yeah. Do you have siblings? Yeah. I have an older sister and a younger sister. So it was like, they know my dad in a different way. And so I had tried to protect them. What, what's going on, you know, so my mother and I had this little pack together, like, you know, this is, this is what we have to do to survive. So the whole family thought my father was just amazing, great guy, you know, generous. Yeah, which he was. But, you know, not with me. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be difficult when somebody sees a person in a certain light and you sort of know the, the hard truth of it. Um, and having to carry that as a young man, that's got to be difficult for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a talented guy, you know, a great electrician and invented stuff, you know, goofy little things. He's always putzing around down in the basement type stuff, you know. But yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know too much about him. I do know he served in World War II in Australia. He wouldn't talk about the war ever. Um, I think once when he was buzzed at a family thing, he talked about, um, you know, being the, the lookout for the sharks when the guys were jumping off the ship to go swimming. But he really didn't talk about that much. And then also, I remember you had mentioned this, and I also remember seeing photos of this. He was in the circus when he was yeah, young, correct? Yeah, on, on like, the trapeze, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Which is ironic. <laughs> yeah, I would have never, I know, a clown, huh? I would have never guessed that. It's, he seemed like he was a very private person or just maybe... I mean, as a grandfather, just he seemed like a sweet old man that would just whistle and putz around the house. But yeah. there was no yeah. real depth for my relationship with him. You know, when I look back on it, he was just kind of a sweet old man to me. Yeah, and that's it's good because you got to see the side of him after he you know, came to Jesus and uh, stopped doing alcohol. And my mother was all elated because she was a religious person. And uh, then he became the quiet, you know, sober guy that he didn't change much, you know. Just became a sober. Mm. So you got a better part of him than I did. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was lucky for that. I'm sure. I can't. I can't imagine. I mean, I did see a little bit of his father um, being still very much an alcoholic, and I remember seeing him and uh, very inebriated at certain family events <laughs> with his mouth hanging open. I don't really have much memories of him other than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of just runs in the family. This, this. Uh, so, when did, did you start to get into drinking, or are you turned off from drinking? No, I was turned off. The, I've had occasional wine back in the day. It was like Boone's Farm cheap gutty wine with smoking weed you know but mostly drugs yeah, yeah. anything i can get my hands on <laughs> well let's go in on that then if you don't mind oh, here what we go. Your exposure yeah. <laughs> to that side of life was it with the gangs you were running with yeah the group the group of guys we started with people would experiment with pills and then i remember i was getting ready to drive and we started on weed maybe 19 let's see, 1965 maybe yeah 1965 around there started smoking weed and loved weed you know it was my favorite and so uh but anything uh during vietnam i had a friend over there they would ship back opium do some opium and uh, during the army i was in the military did some heroin a little bit smoke it you know pcp i mean anything i used to stick glue tubes up my nose in art class in high school you know <laughs> Magic markers, anything I could get my hands on. <laughs> yeah. Very punk rock, sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't start with you guys. <laughs> well, you were right there at that right time, weren't you, when everything was exploding? Um, yes. I, I've always been fascinated with that period in history, especially American history. Um, 65, 66, 67. It felt at that time like everything was changing, right? culturally with race relations women's yep. rights issues gay rights issues ecological concerns you know kind of eastern philosophies creeping in it was really all going on and it was filtered through the music through the popular culture of that time were you sucked into the kind of hippie everything. lifestyle and culture and art and music and oh, everything around it definitely it went full-blown into all that stuff you mentioned yeah fighting for the rights you know protesting in the streets uh, yeah, you, you got to think about the days uh, growing up where the music drove us and we had purpose, you know, because there was an illegal war going on and there was a lot of corruption and government darkness and a lot of conspiracies and uh, part of an underground. I was part of an underground you know, protest movement. And then we had uh, what was it? The uh, uh, Students for Democratic Society, SDS, which I supported and. Uh, the, the rights for the women fighting against that. I was an ecological nightmare as far as making people pick up their trash. Oh yeah. Tell, tell us about, tell us about, I know there's one particular story where you saw somebody throw trash out of their, uh, their car. Yeah. That's it, a little foggy, but I ran after them, made them pick up their trash, ran after them, you know, and just terrorize people about that. And I'm still I'm still into all that recycling and everything else, but it's like we've we've gotten over it and we've settled in. We've got this mediocre kind of recycling thing now. You know, whatever. But essentially that started with your generation. I mean Yeah, definitely. All of that did because we were anti establishment. You know, the establishment sucked. I mean, it still sucks. I'm I was gonna, a, say, I'm, gonna say it uh, hasn't changed much at all. No, no, no. Not, and my politics, you know, back then I didn't realize I was supporting communism. I, who did I know? I was too stoned. But, uh, and then I found out that, you know, I am an American, but I became more of a libertarian, you know, a radical anarchist, like 
anti-government, but pro-constitution. Leave me alone, stay out of my life. But a lot of my generation end up being the, the Marxist communists that are trying to destroy the, company, the country now, like with radical ideas, in my opinion. So you find yourself sort of where, like in the middle of the spectrum now? Yeah, I've gone, I've gone quiet now because it's like, you know, you guys have just ruined everything. I mean, we had a great thing going, even though we were all drugged up. And we thought it was like, yeah, we're going to bring in paradise. You know, Woodstock was like what I call our Tower of Babel experience, you know. And I wrote a paper on that actually in grad school. So, but yeah, all of that, you know, braless girls was great times. <laughs> So you, so you mentioned the music drove you. When did the music drive you? When did you, because you picked up a guitar. I have memories of, of a you know, childhood of you playing a guitar. When did that strike you? And when did you decide that, okay, I want to do this? Oh, man, I was, I was young. I, had a, I was in a band at like age 12, 13, you know, a, a rock and roll kind of uh, wedding band. So you have that picture, that black and white picture of me looking like a punk with a guitar. That I think was 1962 or three. So I was about 13. Yeah. Playing music. Love music. I mean, we've talked about this today. Every day I wake up with a song in my head, you know, everything's music. Everything's music. And today it was some weird thing from, I don't even know the name of the song, but it was just, so every day tormented by music. Yeah. We have that in common. I wake up in the middle of the night and I've got a tune in my head and it will not go away. I'll wake yeah. up. with it. It's something we, sh we definitely share, which is, I think as a musician, a blessing, but also very much a curse. So if I'm working on a record, I get my own stuff stuck in my head and I can't sleep for hours. I'll wake up at three. I'll be up till five with a stupid song in my head. So yeah, we, de we definitely have that in common. I don't remember the song that woke me up this morning, but yeah, it's funny. We recently discovered that we both have this similar thing, Matt. Yeah, this morning was a Beatles song. But you know what Matt was saying too is important because the music drove our philosophy and it had a message because we had a cause. Th that we went through this phase, like you guys growing up and everything, there was no cause. And so the music became meaningless, you know, touchy-feely, we called it bubblegum music. But back then, we were driven by the songs. The songs were the protests that we were expressing. And we were together as a culture, you know. And it was a it was a great time, but it was a very screwed up time, you know, because we were all screwed up. That's what's interesting for me about that time is the lines were very clearly set, weren't they? Yeah. And maybe it wasn't as simple as it seems, but looking back on it, certainly, and through documentaries and books and the albums and everything that was going on, it seemed like there was right and wrong. And there was like, you're either for or against. And, you know, obviously now we live in such a muddled up time where things are a lot more complicated and diluted yeah. but it really did seem then like you're either for you know something like vietnam or you're absolutely opposed to it and, and pick a yeah. side kind of thing yeah i would go around and rip nixon bumper stickers off cars you know because i'd i've been in the uh, was in the military and after that it's like no now the government sucks plain english i was working for the government to go kill people i mean come on get out of here and I was looking through my library here. There's a, there is a book that captures the whole 60s movement. I forget the name of it, but excellent. Everything in that book was like, wow, this is what we did and what we believed. Um, I'm, I don't want to be distracted, but yeah. Why do you think it failed then? I mean, I know that's a huge question and there probably isn't one answer, but why do you think that that revolution and, and that you know, struggle 
towards the end of the decade and certainly by the first couple of years of the 70s had kind of just you know petered out and yeah uh as a philosopher and a theologian i can answer that one way but i'll go back to my experience the micro well the one of the mi macrocosms for me was woodstock i didn't go there but in retrospect analyzing that we built this great tower of unity in our culture and we thought we would be god you know take the place of god and the tower just we just dispersed after that and everybody seemed to kind of turn in on themselves and then uh, you know the conspiracy is that the government introduced lsd into our culture you know i don't know what but yeah it did lots of that a good amount of lsd too but um the whole idea is in my little group of guys, uh, I tried to grow and mature and get educated, uh, which was a total failure for me. But uh, the group turned on each other and we started like not sus uh, suspecting each other. And they thought I was a narc and I wasn't. I was actually doing dealing drugs with someone other group, you know, <laughs> and it was just like it became a very ugly time for us. And I think that was a microcosm of what happened in the whole culture just suspicion everywhere it was forced by the government and our dreams crashed around us you know and we realized that there was so much corruption and darkness in the government and in our culture so from that point that happened but from a theological philosophical standpoint we're just sinful people i mean we just screw it up all the time every opportunity we get we screw things up and we can't create paradise on earth it's never happened and it's not going to happen and it's like the best we could do is just dig in, keep the ecology going, you know, fight against the, you know, pollution and all that stuff. And and it's it's not working because look at how many wars are going on right now. And it's like, hey, we, you know, we're not singing about wars anymore. We're singing about this relationship with this girl or this guy. And you know, it's just, yeah, the music's nowhere now. It's nowhere. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it definitely as far as the mainstream, it's nonsense. Absolutely yeah. agree with that. Um, but I think there is important music, but it's it's suppressed. And I, I, I'm on board. You know, you and I have these conversations all the time. I'm completely on board with the government control. And I do believe sabotage happened. And I think a lot of that from my conversations, because I live up here in Woodstock, where a lot of the people who attended the festival settled. And I hear the word cocaine a lot. I feel like a lot of hippies feel like cocaine ruined that generation because Definitely. it yeah. brought in a darkness, a darker side where it wasn't just about free love. And anyone who, who has dabbled in cocaine or does cocaine, majority of the people that do that, it's, it's a dark drug. It makes you do horrible things. And people were stealing for it or, you know, it just kind of destroyed a lot of people. So the harder drugs and there is, a, you know, call it what you will, a conspiracy that that, that was introduced on purpose. To that generation to sort of sabotage their utopian way of life because as we all know peace doesn't make money for people you know wars do when we yeah. are a yeah. war warlike country so i think that that you know i subscribe to that as well i think that it was that generation your generation was sabotaged on purpose and that i'm glad you said that because i went off to go to the army a little bit for a, a small stint and i came back and everybody was dealing cocaine like I was a weed smoker for the most part. And uh, all of a sudden, Coke was this new darkness that came in. And all of a sudden, my friends weren't my friends anymore. And everything changed. And 
I had to pull away from that. And, um, and then I, we started getting paranoid about the FBI following us. And you know, heard that story where oh, yeah. I became totally paranoid about that. And you mentioned a moment ago you were dealing drugs, so maybe there was a reason for a bit of paranoia. <laughs> what, were you, what were you running and where were you running it? Well, basically just weed and um, speed tablets, you know, stuff like that. THC. Yeah, I, I love THC. Uh, anyway, that's another story. But no, <laughs> what was the other thing? Oh, hash oil. I, hash oil was my favorite. Yeah, dip the cigarettes in it, you know, smoke it. So, uh, yeah, but I'm, I just want to let everybody know I'm still, I'm clean. I've been clean for over 40 years. <laughs> Did so you I encounter guess, any sketchy, you know, characters or situations doing that? Uh, not really. I wasn't as deep into it as my friends seemed to be. And a couple of them, one or two of them died and one of them ended up in jail. And uh, I just faded away from that. I got a Harley Davidson and started riding off on my own, you know. And uh, staying away from everybody. I had a girlfriend for about four years. We broke up, and that kind of sent me off the deep end. But um, back in the day, it was just like, leave me alone. I just I, I started getting doing my artwork. Wanted to escape the country, you know, get away. That's what I thought. I started studying Zen Buddhism and looking at different Eastern philosophies and religions, you know. And uh, Buddhism was kind of the most attractive, so. Studied that for about three years, Zen. And then uh, decided to get away from that environment and cut my hair a little bit because it was long. And I took my Harley and went out to California thinking I'd go to Tibet and join a Buddhist monastery. Yeah. So that's, that's when you started to realize that the peace you were seeking through your generation, through the music and culture wasn't enough and you wanted more. That's when your yeah. quest for truth started, correct? Uh, well, it started in the 60s because of my identity crisis. Trying to find out, how do you find peace when you don't even know who the hell you are, you know? And your childhood is all screwed up and your relationships are all screwed up and, you know, and you had to be part of this gang, but you enjoyed your own solitude and you wanted to be an artist and a musician and, you know, it was just nutty. It was nutty. Messed up. So... Yeah, and uh, I became very serious when I got away from the group because I got a, it was the time of searching, you know, searching for whatever, getting in tune with the universe. So I was reading all kinds of things, like magic mushrooms, Carlos Castaneda, and, you know, getting into, you know, meditation and all that stuff. Crazy, all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. So oh, I, I, in my mind, I was so drugged up that I thought going to Tibet and join a Buddhist monastery would find me what I wanted. And, you know, you and God. everybody else at that time, right? Yeah, like yeah, was, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was closed down because of communism. I was just like, uh, I had thoughts in my head. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so you got you got to California and um, I believe you didn't you stay at a commune for a while there? Was it Bakersfield? Is that kind of where you you ended no, up? Well, I was living with some some people and I had my Harley <laughs> and um we were, we were, we would bike together, casual bike together, but it was in uh, Uber city, Marysville, uh, California. Okay. And, uh, then I ran into this guy who looked peaceful, the kind of peace that I was searching for. And I asked him what he was on, you know, I thought, what kind of drug are you on? And he said, uh, I'm into Jesus. And I'm like, okay, 
That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. Yet. Yeah, they are. Can you smoke it? <laughs> <laughs> and he said he invited me up to the commune in the mountains, and the place was called Smartsville. And I heard that they all dispersed and became religious. A lot of them became more religious, embedded in the institutions, you know. So, and I was so impressed with the communal life, but it was like cleaned up communal, no drugs, you know, no wild sex. <laughs> For better or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, in California, I got worse. I started taking like PCP, doing a lot of hash oil. Uh, I was having these out-of-control, bo- out out-of-body experiences. And it got kind of scary, you know. So, Could you tell us about one? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite <laughs> was when uh, we had – we I lived in this house with these people – and we had three houses, three or four houses in a row. So it was all like uh, military people. So I was the only non-military person. Uh, and they were active military. But we would party all the time. So they were having a party down the driveway at the other house. And I was just cleaning up, doing the dishes. You know, it did a lot of PCP. And um, I left to go to the party. And I walked through the door and looked at myself. And I was kind of like translucent. And I said, whoa, I lost, I forgot myself back at the house. So I went back to the house and I saw myself doing dishes still. So I kind of like you know, freaked out, put myself together, got back to the party. And I'm like, I, I'm screwed. I need help, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm out of control. And this is like 10, 12 years into drug abuse, you know. So I, I was just over the top and I needed help. And I didn't know where to go, I mean, you know. And that's why that guy came into my life and just like, ooh, serious and stuff. You were literally losing yourself. <laughs> I, I was literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's intense. I've I've heard that story before. I'll never forget that one. So serious. so you, so you find this guy. He tells you about Jesus and what what went through your mind and and how did that lead you back? Because I know you went back home to to spread. Yeah, the- yeah. Um, well, you know, raised Roman Catholic. My mother was an Irish Catholic, and she, you know, the nuns being around, I went to Catholic school, left in the middle of seventh grade because I couldn't stand it anymore, forsook religion, everything else, broke my mother's heart, whatever. But I never learned anything. I didn't know anything about religion or Jesus or anything like that. So when I got up there, it was like all these hippies like me, but they were straight. And, uh, you know, as, as I see God working in the universe, this gorgeous, long-haired, brown-haired girl came to me and said, do you want to accept Jesus? And I was like, <laughs> whatever it takes. But <laughs> so I, I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea what she meant. And she said, you pray and you ask God to help change your life. And it's like, ah, that's the key to what I'm looking for. I need change. Mm-hmm. So they, she says, you pray and we'll support you. So I said, okay. And all of a sudden it was like, I was surrounded by hippies laying hands on me and I'm asking God, please help me. I'm so screwed up. I need change, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't know what, how to pray. I didn't know what I was doing, but they all agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I instantaneously felt this oppressive weight come out of me and I felt clean. And I was like, dude, that." Something just happened. They were like, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus. I'm like, I don't know, whatever it is. I feel changed. 
So I went back to the group of guys and like I would drive my bike into the house because I didn't want to leave it outside. So I'm, I come home, I drive my Harley into the living room. Everybody's stoned out of their mind. And uh, one guy looks at me, he says, hey, your face is glowing. Of course, he's not drunk. And I said, oh, yeah. He goes, what happened to you? I said, I, I don't know, man. I accepted Jesus. And they were like, oh, no, a Jesus freak. I had no <laughs> idea what that meant. But from then on in, they were suspicious of me. And I went a whole week without getting high. And it's like something happened. And this power in me just rescued me from a drug addiction. I don't know what, how it. So I couldn't stay there any longer. And it, you know, it was weird. So I just, I sold my Harley. I sold my car, got on the plane, went back to Rhode Island. My mother was happy as a pig in crap, you know, because I was <laughs> not drugs anymore, you know. And uh, she was all excited, yay! And she didn't really understand what it, that meant because you're a Roman Catholic. You just you're a Roman Catholic. You know? And uh, so I went back to the gang. I went to the gang guys, and I started telling them what happened to me. And that was just that was the end of it. <laughs> they just kind of turned their backs on me, and just that was the end of that relationship. <laughs> yeah, you start talking like that, and you're a narc automatically. In that, yeah, day. yeah, okay. yeah. At one point, yeah, that that was pro a problem. And so that was like, okay, now what do I do? You know, I found myself and now I don't have any friends. <laughs> yeah. So my mother was connected with this guy who was a pastor of his church. They call it the hippie church. And she introduced me. So I started going to that church and it was a Pentecostal, uh, 350 kids who were like all kinds of screwed up who are now serving Jesus. So I got part of that church and that's where I met your mother. Played my music, wrote some songs, you know. I was back, you know, cool. Straight and back. Celibate and back. <laughs> Let me yes. ask you this. Looking back on it now, do you believe it was Jesus that saved you? Is that oh, what definitely. You because, yeah, the power is still there. I mean, that, that moment was so memorable that to take a person like me and just totally revolutionize my screwed up, self-destructive lifestyle, you know, suicidal at times, and it's just like, wow. And I never turned back from that. I've always hung on to that moment, you know, and brought it forward into my life, you know. And so I was determined to become the father that my father wasn't, you know. So I was a fanatic. Jesse will testify to that. We'll, we'll get we'll get to that. That's, <laughs> I'm curious. So um, and for our listeners, too, because I think this is a very interesting story. When you meet uh, mom. So you met her. Was it at that particular, that first church you were going to there? Yeah, that church. She was, uh, she was newly converted to. She has her own story. And ironically, we both had amazing um, experiences on the same weekend. She was on a Friday in the East Coast. I was on a Sunday on the West Coast. And we compared, when we got together, we compared notes. Well, wow, cool. This is, uh, this is amazing stuff. Yeah. But she yeah, was I kind of, she I kind didn't of know that. Religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know it was the same weekend. That's see, that, same um, weekend. Isn't that weird? That is weird. But I, I started dating, trying to date some of the girls, you know, and the, and you can't touch them or anything like that. So it was a, this weird new experience for me, and uh, <laughs> I was struggling to be celibate. But I lasted a whole year, you know, without having any sex or drugs. And then uh, the pastor said, "Hey, why don't you check out, you know, Corinthi?" And whatever. You know, and so we we dated about six weeks and we got married <laughs> after six weeks. Yeah. 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 
Well, you know, I'll tell you, there's a little verse in the Bible. You're going to find your little verses, but there's a little verse that said, it's better to marry than burn with passion. And I was like, yes, that's the one, right? <laughs> so I went to her parents and said, listen, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm in love. I didn't exactly know what that meant, but then we got married. Six weeks, I paid for the wedding myself out of my own pocket. It was done in the church, all the hippies. You know, we had the praise band and going on. Done, let's go. <laughs> Still married Incredible. today. Still Slam married. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Matt's like, what? What is going on, this guy? <laughs> no, I love it. I want to ask you this. When you mentioned a moment ago about wanting to be the father that you didn't have, did you always want to have your own kids, even though you'd had a messed up childhood yourself? Did you always know in the back of your head, I do still want to be a dad. I want a family. I want to have that life. You know, I looking back and my memory is kind of shot, but I don't remember ever really wanting to have a family. I just wanted to get laid. <laughs> Plain English. I mean, That's you know, <laughs> reverend, reverends don't say things like that, but uh, let's be real. You know, yeah. it's not. I'm not using vulgarity or blasphemy. I'm just, you know. <laughs> no judgment here. This is a judgment-free zone. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. So, you know, and then I got married and just, she was like fertile myrtle, man. Yeah. <laughs> four, four months in and she's pregnant. I'm like, I have no clue. I don't yeah. have a clue what to do with this, you know? Is that with your brother, Jesse? Yeah, my older brother, yeah, Aaron. Yeah. Yep. And I just wow. learned, and, and I learned a lot about fatherhood by reading the Bible and seeing how God reacts to people. God loves people unconditionally, you know, and you know, and he's and it says to be devoted and dedicated to your wife unconditionally, cherish her, you know, yeah. don't dominate her, rule over, her, oppress her, and and so we learned how to treat each other from the rules of the Bible, you know. So we became very rule oriented. <laughs> and yeah. Jesse and Aaron suffered the consequences of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, that being said, you were navigating the best you could with your lack of father, you know, a father figure. So, you know, and I've heard you say this before, and I know this to be true, that God became your father figurehead. So you, yeah. as you were saying through scripture, but also just through your daily life. And I love this because we've talked about this. This is something I do as well. It's just having conversations out loud so not just praying to God, but actually talking to God as if it's, you know, he's your friend or your therapist. Yeah. yeah. And that's and something that's helped you a lot, right? Yeah, because I was so messed up when I was newly converted. I lived in an apartment and the guy I was living with couldn't take me anymore, so he left. So I was living alone, which was cool. I liked that. But I would, I would sit and there was a chair in my living room and I would just picture Jesus sitting there and just talk. You know, that was my therapy. I didn't, you know. You don't really know how to pray. You just have a conversation. So I'd picture him in the chair and uh, made me a little weird, I guess, but it, it helped psychologically. It helped. I wasn't alone, you know, type thing. I was so, back to some kind of normal normalcy. Yeah. So when you had, uh, when you found out you were going to be a dad, where were you in life? What, what were you doing for work? Like, where did your mindset go? Did you panic? <laughs> how did you deal with it? It's interesting. I was in, uh, I was doing the cryogenics uh, distribution uh, thing where you got the gas tanks, welding tanks and stuff like that, oxygen. And I was in that business. And then I had a desire to be more creative. So I went to uh, hairstyling school and um, started learning how to be a hairstylist. 
And I joke around because shortly after that, I left and went to Bible college. So I tell people that God spoke to me. He said, go to Barbara College. And God was mumbling. So I thought he meant Barbara College. And I went to Barbara College, but it ended up Bible College. So I ended up cutting hair in Bible College. So it all worked out. <laughs> That's funny. So you felt a calling to to spread this uh, this new peace that you had found in your life. Is that, is that yeah, your mother and I were, we were driven to yeah. do that. <laughs> we harassed everybody. Yeah. Were you moving so around I, the country a lot as well? Am I right in thinking that? Uh, yeah, we moved a lot because of me. Uh, I'm to blame. But um, the, the Bible College was in Florida, and that's where Jesse was born. We went there with a kid. And then uh, after three years, I got antsy. So we moved to Missouri, and I finished college there. Then we went back to Rhode Island. Then I got an itch to get more education. So we moved to Philadelphia and I went to graduate school, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. And I graduated from there. We went back to Rhode Island. Then I got an itch you know, to do more. Then uh, they called me as a full-time pastor. And so we moved to Wisconsin and that was like not good. So we moved back to Rhode Island. And then I, went, I spent 10 years there, entrepreneurial business, building houses, making movies and all that stuff. And then I went, at age 50, I went back to seminary for the second time, got a second master's degree, PhD, then, you know, so, yeah, so we moved along. <laughs> you see, you have a very relentless, restless drive that's obviously innately in you, right? Yes, and, and I was explaining because it's, it's all about truth, and I believe there's only one truth, and I know everybody's going to crucify me for this, but crucify. I'm a philosopher. I'm a philosopher. Give me a break here. I'm a college professor. So... Uh, <laughs> So the idea is I tell Jesse, like a lot of people are plowing the field looking for truth. Once you find truth, then you start digging the well and going down deep as you can. So I dug deep and a lot of people are still on the surface looking for it. And the deeper you go, the more lonely it gets kind of, you know, because you become very odd and you can't communicate to anybody and people don't really want to hear it. So after I became this fanatical religious guy going deep, it's pretty soon I'm the guy sitting there reading a book and everybody's like avoiding me, you know, don't start a conversation with them, whatever you do. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't want to go down that, uh, that hole. I don't think it's even just religion. It's with a lot of things. A lot of people yeah, don't like yeah. depth. They don't, they don't like, depth. And that's the problem with where we are in society is people don't want to have conversations. They just want to argue or just cut you off and censor you and not talk to you at all. So Unless that, you're a professor, then you can flunk them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i liked about being a professor <laughs> yeah, i want to touch on that too but so i mean there's so much we could go through so i actually i want to touch on this so you're going through bible college you know i'm aaron's born i'm born you worked a ton of different jobs too so while you're going to school and one of them was um carpentry and you worked alongside uh, uncle george and you kind of rubbed rubbed elbows with some of the uh, people who are involved with organized crime. So I'm curious about that. And that actually led you into the movie business, correct? Just how does that timeline go? How does it play? Yeah, I wouldn't make that leap from organized crime to movies because that would be tough. But yeah, no, yeah. I know in yeah. general, I just, to me, it's all kind of convoluted because I was young, but I know that yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of stuff that went on in that circle of, uh, you know, our extended family and friends. Yeah, let's be careful here now, okay? Exactly. You're trying to protect the guilty. That's what's happening. Oh, no, no. <laughs> you don't have to get specific. We don't have to get specific. No, no, I won't get specific. 
but yeah, working with Uncle George, you know, and the other his other partner there, you get to hear the conversations. And I actually started with another guy who was connected with the mob. And, you know, uh, I heard stories there before I worked with Uncle George. And I remember we were working on a project and they just had the foundation and, and uh, one of the godfathers came to inspect this building thing. And he says, look, at, don't look at the guy, don't say anything. And you don't know who's buried in this foundation. So just mind your business, that type of, so it was that kind of thing. So working, working with Uncle George is like, you know, you hear about the little criminal activity that went on or is gonna go on. And I'll tell you a funny story. We're, we're working together as a team, three man team. And uh, they're working on, you know, robbing this guy with his drugs, but he's kind of connected with this police department and they protect him. So they're trying to figure out how to do this deal there. And then uh, his partner says, oh, Georgie, don't, don't talk in front of the reverend. You know, what if somebody asked him a question? Georgie goes, oh, no, he's a pastor. He can't divulge this information. It's like private and secret. I said, no, George, you're not in the confessional booth here. You know, <laughs> stop it. Don't talk like this in front of me. <laughs> so, so those kind of experiences, you know. So working with Georgie, you know, eventually that ran out because he, the drugs were more important than the job. So I lost that. So I skipped around entrepreneurial ventures. And then, um, you know, Mike, I got involved with a, a law firm. So I was doing work with a law firm. And then uh, Michael asked me to help him with the movie. So I take breaks from the law firm, go make a movie, come back. Did that for a while. So we yes. made a few movies. My uncle Michael is a, uh, was a director. He directed a, a couple of films, what, American Buffalo, Outside Providence. Um, Federal outside Hill. Federal Hill, which is a great Federal one. Hill. And outside Providence, I was actually, I got to act in as well. I got to, to do a little bit part in it. But yeah, that was a, how many years were you in the film industry? Uh, probably about five. That's it. Yeah. I managed everything behind the camera. I was a location manager. So it was, it was the first movie with a lot of fun because that was his own movie, black and white. We financed it ourselves, you know, and, uh, and it was a coming of age kind of movie about Georgie's life, you know, yeah. with the, with the mob. And uh, but after that, it get more complicated. The second movie was with Dustin Hoffman and a little more pressure. And the third movie, Alec Baldwin, uh, outside the Farrelly brothers. Yeah. And it was a huge production. And I was like over my head, a lot of stress. What a wild life. Yeah. A lot of things. Just crazy. Manic, you know, about life. Jesse, let me ask you this. We've kind of heard the the words like rules and regulations. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Strictness being alluded to. What's your memories as a kid growing up? Because you told me, I hope you don't mind me throwing you under the bus here. When we did our live Q&A together, you said in that that like you weren't allowed to bring metal albums home because it was the devil's music in the eyes yeah. of your, your father. So um, you had to sneak in albums by you know Iron Maiden and the like and obviously then you later wound up touring with them which is hilarious but yeah that whole story is definitely hilarious and it's let's be clear it was my brother was sneaking the stuff in my brother <laughs> I, will, I will throw him under the bus he was definitely the guy that uh would sort of dangle things in front of me um you know let's be honest we were like the simpsons kids you know like we were definitely you know I have an early memory of speaking of our uncles. I have an early memory of um, being, I think it was Christmas time, and my uncle, uh, God rest his soul, was was dating this really young girl and uh, <laughs> living together. And I'm all wound up in my my uh, 
you know, my Christian state of mind, I remember accusing him. I don't know if I pointed at him, but I just basically said to him, you're living in sin. And this is in front of the entire family at like a Christmas gathering. <laughs> Maybe dad, you could, you remember that, but I have a vague memory of chastising him in front of the entire family saying so he was living yeah, in I put sin. I put that bug in your ear and say, why don't you go up and tell Uncle George he's living in sin? I, I threw you under the bus. Yeah, I, well, I'm sure. You know, I was so indoctrinated. I just, I, any chance we got, you know, I was the kid that, you know, if the minister would pause and say, amen, I would scream amen from my, my, you know, being a little kid. It just, that was our life. That's what we believed in. And, you know, thankfully it, it loosened up over the years. You guys, you know, I think it happens with anything. When you discover something that changes your life so radically, you can't help but jump in and go gung ho. Yeah. And as strict as my upbringing was, I think it really helped shape and mold the person I am today. And I still cling to a lot of those good things and the stuff in retrospect that shaped me more than anything was your compassion for people. So as much as I grew up with strictness and rules and, you know, they would read the lyrics and, and it was especially during the eighties when it was like, you know, this whole satanic panic was going on. Um, yeah. All that aside though, the one thing that always sticks out to me when I think about my childhood is, our house was always open to people in need. And your, you and mom, your love, you emulated this love that, that Jesus gave you, that God gave you, that you took literally and gave it to other people. And I can remember a cast of characters from a very young age coming and going through our doors, staying with us, picking them up, bringing them to church, feeding them, having dinner with them. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, really enjoying your alone time. So maybe speak to, maybe speak to the fact that you are constantly bringing people in the house and helping people. How did you balance the, your love of God and your wanting to be um, compassionate to people versus like, maybe you need to be alone sometimes too. Cause I can't imagine, you know, in my mind, it seemed like a lot of people came and went through our house. Yeah, they did, but it was a big house. And I know some, one time we had a family of five living in the basement and uh, stuff like that. But I just took time to stop. I was the guy who we went to a family gathering and I would sit in the corner and read a book and become antisocial. So the family thought I was weird like that, but I, I was trying to get through graduate school and I was trying to just get my education. And now I've got you know, four theological degrees to show for it, but it was just a matter of that's what life was. And your mother was a big drive behind that because she's like, you know, compassion on steroids. <laughs> you know, and uh, I used to jokingly say, even though in the Greek there's similar words, but uh, empathy versus sympathy. You know, I sympathize with you, but I don't empathize with you. I'm not feeling your pain. You know, <laughs> I'll feel for you, but I'm, yeah, which is not really grammatically correct from a Greek standpoint. But anyway, I, I diverse. Um, <laughs> All you Greek scholars out there, take note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sympathia, yeah, sympathia, and uh, yeah, empathia. Uh, <laughs> it was Aristotle, actually. But um, yeah, it's just like, that's what you do. That's just what you do. And if people will, you know, regardless of their religion, if they just acted like that more, and the world will be a happier place. You know, we just took people in, suicide, drugs, whatever it was, you know, just take them in, take care of them, and then get them on their feet and send them on their way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have a vague memory of a, uh... Actually, a very clear memory of uh, 
you know, a nameless ex-con that lived with us and uh, <laughs> and him trying to find peace and uh, sitting on our couch listening to some meditation tape and he just being like, I'm not feeling peaceful. It's not working. <laughs> and he would go down. I, so at the time I was really into martial arts because I had a, a, a chapter of my life where I was obsessed with martial arts and he would go down in the basement and I'd hold the heavy bag for him and this guy, this, you know, this guy who was pretty much, you know, a, a, a killer uh, working the bag and talking to me about self-control. <laughs> it's, <just, laughs> it's one of those one of those guys and one of those moments I'll never forget. And I still to this day, when I sort of make jokes about my, my heritage, my Italian-American heritage, he's like the main main guy that I, you know, will emulate and, and speak. And like when I change my accent and the body language, it's that guy. And yeah. I, you know, I'll never forget him staying with us. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff just stuck with me, you know, as much as our upbringing was fairly strict. But yeah, I give you guys credit. You know, when I started getting into to punk rock and, and heavy music and, and wanting to be in a band and screaming out in the garage, as much as you may have thought it was a phase, I know, especially you, I'm sure you were like hoping for college for me and all that, but you guys supported that. And I, I commend you for that as we, we came from a hyper-religious background where that stuff was not allowed. And then I became, I became the music that you know was was sort of banned in our house yeah i I commend you for that that's uh an interesting transition and i'm sure it took some uh how did you yeah how did you first react when i started getting into that type of stuff where where was your brain at no i think we all grew together because uh, pentecostalism tends to be very legalistic so it's like you can't drink smoke go to movies dance and all the stuff that makes life very boring and so uh you know, we grew, I grew out of that legalism and accepted the freedom that uh, I can have. And at the same time, watching you grow up, you know, you're not going to hammer a young kid and say, you can't do that because I was a firm believer in that God gifts everyone in a certain way for a certain purpose to better society and the world. And so if that's the way you were going, you were very musical you want to take piano lessons and drum lessons and guitar lessons and you know drive us crazy in that way but you know that's that's who you were so you don't you don't crush a kid's dreams you know you just go with it and learn and so you start listening to the music and like okay and i remember the first time you i went to one of your concerts and i'm not sure if it was kill switch or it was corinne or whatever and i said yeah you sound like you're demon possessed <laughs> And that was my evaluation of your music. <laughs> well, and, you know, at the time, I think the first few bands were very dark. And then Killswitch was the first band where I actually started to focus on the lyrical content and be positive and actually have a message to it. I think that's kind of yeah. when I graduated to, I think, sort of serve my, my, my calling, my greater purpose was with, through lyrics. But yeah, I think for those who don't know, many I'm sure do not know, I was in a band called Corinne, which is a very dark uh, mostly dark poetry, not evil necessarily, but um, yeah, you can't really find that stuff online, but I'm, I'm working on reissuing that album. I'm trying to get the masters for it, but yeah, I started out pretty, pretty dark and sort of just, you know, trying to figure out who I was. And then Killswitch is the first band that I really took the lyrical ideology that I was brought up and put it into music. And that's when, you know, the career kind of started really because of that. Yeah, and that's uh, when I analyzed those lyrics, uh, you know, as an educated person. Wow, this is good stuff. Brilliant. And so it was like, cool. Okay. Not a, not a fan of heavy metal. 
but uh, I like listening to you. <laughs> You're not a fan of heavy metal. That well, actually, you are. You're just a fan of the older heavy metal. It's still heavy yeah, metal. Yeah. <laughs> Because it, it start, all starts sounding the same, and everybody starts sounding the same. It's typical in any genre, you know? Yeah. Was there ever a point in time when you were worried about Jesse? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? It's funny because Jesse was like this quiet guy who tried to obey the rules, but we know he was a little sneaky. And once in a while, it would leak out. So, But we weren't as concerned as for him because he was more like me. He was reclusive, you know, introverted. And I said, well, that's a pretty safe lifestyle. And so, uh, you know, when you weigh it, Aaron ended up getting more attention, negative attention. And Jesse was like the solid kid who we trusted. It was always there, even though that may have been a little false in retrospect. But yeah, I, my only issue with really was, was drugs. I experimented, I experimented with drugs, but other than that, I, I really wasn't a bad kid. I, I didn't have any like you know crime in me or anything like that. I wasn't yeah. anything yeah. horrible. <laughs> you, yeah, you weren't whoring around and getting notches on your belt and all these. Girls. I was getting my I was getting my heart broken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He he was the he was that guy. But I remember yeah, just, just the one time when you're having that bad trip coming into the bedroom. Oh yeah. Oh, let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. Okay. Talk you down. That's funny. Yeah. So I started to experiment with acid. I remember the first time I did. Um, and it was just a tab. It was a friend of mine. And uh, we had a, a, a an older guy that was sort of watching. He was a Grateful Dead kind of guy as our chaperone for the night. And it was an incredible experience. It was a lot of fun. But um, yeah, I started to dabble. And then I got, I kind of got involved with this guy who, um, you know, God rest his soul, is no longer with us, who was deranged. He was just a bad, he was a bad dude. Um, and uh, I got uh, dosed with 16 hits, which I thought were four. Uh, and it was very strong Timothy Leary original, you know, chemical formula. So I had, that was a, when I was what, 18, 17. And I had been dabbling and having fun, just innocent, you know, shit you do when you're a kid. And that night, that was, that was the last time I touched it for a long time. Uh, and I, I got to the point where I couldn't handle it anymore. I, the walls were going to eat me. I was seeing demonic energy all around. It was bad. So I actually woke my parents up. And, uh, yeah, I let them know, like, I'm not okay. I need help. And, uh, he, they helped, but then I remember, I'll never forget. You dragged me to church the next day and the carpets in this church had little designs on them and they were crawling up my legs and that was, <laughs> was nuts, man. Uh, going to church on acid. I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it was quite, I, I never tried that one. <laughs> quite the experience. And yeah, I hadn't, I didn't, I got off this. I didn't touch anything for a long time after that. <laughs> that was a wake up call. But uh, yeah, you guys, you guys were okay with it, man. I mean, not okay with it, but you guys were good about me and my life. And I mean, mom even dropping me off at the nightclubs to go see bands. And I just became part of this community and you allowed that. And you know, that speaks volumes, I think, as far as growth coming from where we grew up in a very strict environment to you sort of, um, supporting my my dream to become a at the time a punk hardcore singer yeah, even yeah. though even though you know the long-term plan really wasn't there and i didn't stick with music lessons and i didn't go to school after you know high school but here i am somehow i i made it but uh yeah you guys were always there mom was definitely more of the like i'm gonna show up and show you and i know you support it from a distance but 
Yeah, when you first started to show up to the shows, yeah, it's you guys really supported me through this for sure. So I commend you for that. Uh, yeah, why not? You're a kid. You're my son. <laughs> That's what we do. Was there a moment for you when you realized that what he'd started out as like a passion project and a hobby had become a legitimate career and you realized like, oh, he's really doing it? Did you ever have yeah. a moment like that? Yeah, I did. I don't remember the exact time, but I remember that I I think I realized he was famous before he did. And I would I think I have to remind him like, Jesse, you you are famous and you need to and I remember he used to change his look all the time. It would drive me nuts because you need to become iconic. Get a look and stick with the look so people can recognize you. That's part of the marketing. You know? They do say, right, you need to be recognizable in silhouette form. If you're recognizable in silhouette form, then you're oh, like okay. an icon. Good. Yeah, there, there you go. He's got a silhouette. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, it's funny that you, you used to always pound that into me. And I was like so frustrated with it because I was still searching. I mean, truth be told, you know, I joined Kill Switch and fell flat on my face and struggled for many years in a band called Seamless. Just I, you know, I took the long, hard road for whatever reason, or I was given the long, hard, hard road for whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't uh, decide on who I wanted to be musically. And, you know, now by default, the beard and the mohawk have stayed. And I I didn't realize this, but it's been years of the same look. So, yeah. Dad, you, you won. I, <laughs> yes, finally. I have no other look, but also that's that's also because I'm older now and my hairline isn't quite as beautiful as it used to be. <laughs> hey, can't blame me for that one. No, it's true. Yeah, you, you still got a full head of hair, unlike Aaron. Um, but, oh, <laughs> <laughs> have you guys always been close then it seems like you have but was there any um, ever any point where you were a little bit adrift i i don't i don't think we were ever like you know we would butt heads i don't there was no animosity i don't think i think i got frustrated a lot um trying to figure out who i was but we always had moments even if there was arguments or things would go you know or i would just be an, an ignorant teenager we always had these moments where we would come together and reestablish that bond. And yeah, I think no matter what happened, we always found our way back into a family union before my sister came along, you know, my brother and I were the only two causing, causing ruckus. And yeah, I mean, dad, I guess you could speak to that as well, but I feel like we've always found a way to pull together as a family, regardless. Yeah. Of that. And uh, you know, my philosophy was that um, we don't fight as a family. And my motto became embrace the dysfunction because you need to. If you can't do that, then what's the sense of being a family? But the only the only time period, there was a time period where we became frustrated with Jesse because now he's world famous and blah, blah, blah. And then we hear about issues on social media. And it's like, you know, that's not the way we want to hear about you. So somebody would call up or our daughter would call up. Oh, I just saw an Instagram that Jesse blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? And uh, so it was like, can you, but it was a dark spark for him in his life. So everything got social media and the world knew before his own parents. knew. And so it was like, can we face his mother? Can we face them? I want to see your face. And it's like, yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. He was just avoiding the whole thing for, for a while there. Yeah. And, you know, I, in my defense, it was a rough time that I was going through. Yeah. So I think for me, when it did come out on social media, I, as it was coming out through an interview, that's when I was discovering it. So it, I was a bit behind the curve with that. But, you know, since then, we've, you know, we've sort of 
got on the same page again. And I don't say anything too shocking. I don't think on social media anymore. But um, what's the yeah, was, series of events there? Was that when you left Killswitch the first time, or what's the sort of no, story there? No, no. I mean that was a rough time too. But I would say for me, like leading the years leading up to my divorce and separation. <laughs> Going through my divorce and separation and, and coming out of it, that was a really rough spot uh, for me. And I know for sure that they were super, uh, cons- super concerned. There you go. Super concerned for, for my well-being and, and such. But uh, I mean, rightly so, because I was I I listen and anyone who's gone through a tough spot where you go through a divorce and you have to sort of split friends and family and whatever the case may be. I just kind of deaded everybody. I didn't want to deal with anybody. So I lost a ton of friends during that time. I just couldn't handle it. I was in shock pretty much because what I went through and what I discovered during that time, um, you know, I didn't know how to deal with it and I didn't know how to let anyone in. I didn't want help. I just wanted to numb, numb, numb until I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels here. So yeah, that was that's part of being artistic, but it's also part of being an introvert. Yeah. You know, and you're forced on stage, you're forced out of yourself and you're a great entertainer, but you're an introvert. Yeah. It's an it's interesting balance there. And I was the same way. I, when I get in the classroom, I'm a maniac, but it's like, yeah, you're oh, or even, even when you preach and that's one thing, you know, I always tell people you're a brilliant public speaker. And I, I learned a lot from you watching you preach. Um, and also just, you know, the little, um, advice you give me about like how body language and eye contact and all those things carried through to my stage presence. And I, I had to learn that. And I think my, my success as a, as a performer is because of that is from watching how you use body language and eye contact. And there's power in that type of stuff. There's power in, you know, it's one thing to say something, but it's another to sort of accentuate it with your body and mean it and make that eye contact and that's some of the most powerful stuff that I've learned as a performer. And I've seen you do it where you scan, you know, you look at your notes and you scan and then you make eye contact to make a point. And I see that with my music when I do, when I sing and I make eye contact with somebody who's singing along, then you have that instant connection. And that's what it's all about being a performer and sort of that balance between being an introvert and being an extrovert, which can be exhausting, but it's well worth it when you figure out how to navigate that energy. Yeah. It's really hard as well, I think, trying to navigate a private life, but then also certainly a public life with social media and those that you care about in your family. Um, Because this is all new territory, isn't it, for the whole human race? It's only in the last 10 years that any of us know how to navigate these seas. And it's, you know, it can be such a destructive force. It can be a positive force, too. But it's it's something that I think not a lot of people discuss and, and explore in, in that much detail at the moment. But it's certainly something in my life that's come up as well, like with, you know, because I'm very open on social media, too. Um, and, you know, there's been times where my sister's kind of been a bit like, oh, can you sort of you know not take. sorry, not can you take that down? Yeah. Because what you're saying there kind of applies to me as well. Yeah. And you be yeah, it's. I mean, you obviously, we didn't, none of us had it as kids, none of us had it as young adults, and it's now just this force which has changed the world so much, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I can speak to that as a college professor because we're in the experimental generation 
which means that they're going to grow up to be screwed up adults. And hopefully their kids or their grandkids will get it right and kind of adapt to all of this stuff. But right now it's just causing total chaos in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. And I, I deal with that in the classroom with social etiquette, you know, put your freaking phone down, you know, and I'd walk around the classroom to see what they were doing. And I'd make fun of them if they were on social media and I wouldn't hammer them or anything. It's just like, but I'd keep note of that when the grades come up. Yeah. Okay. I got your number, you know, but they don't know how to act. I mean, yeah. I, I had I'm a lecture. I'm so thankful that I'm not a kid growing up with social media in my life. Oh, no. no, it's addictive. It's so addictive. It's one of the most addictive things introduced into our culture. You know, seriously. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. And it, I mean, essentially it's just marketing, isn't it? It's really just about selling a product somehow. Somehow that's what social media is. It's crazy how they've switched. Neuro, to it's all neuroscience. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned a few times, uh, Professor, I want to talk, and if you could talk about how, how did you transition into uh, being a full-time minister, which, you know, at one point you had your own church, you were a full-time minister, and I know that was a rough, a little bit of a rough time. How did you transition from that into being a professor? Where did that opportunity open? Was that something you kind of always saw yourself doing, or did that just kind of fall in your lap? Yeah, this, this would be good for your audience to know, because... Uh, I wanted to be a professor back when I was at Westminster back in the early 80s. And that's the road I wanted to take. And I wanted to go from that master's degree in religion to a PhD in philosophy. And there was a, a college close by that would allow me to do that. But then uh, your mother got kind of burnt out on Philly. And then she had that traumatic experience where she lost the baby and everything else. So it was like, okay, it's time for you to stop dragging us around the country and we need to recoup. And so I kind of lost my momentum there. And that's when you know, I went back. And, um, but I always wanted to be a professor. And, but the religious, the religious community is like, you have to go to seminary and be a pastor. And it's this, this myopic view of getting educated religiously, you know, theologically or philosophically. And so um, it got more and more narrow. Till you know, when I became a full-time pastor for two years in Wisconsin, and that was like, you know, the people said, oh, we can't afford you, bye-bye. And then uh, this recent going to seminary the second time, it's like, I, I still want to be a professor. And they're like, you can't be a professor. You have to be a pastor for at least three years before you can be a professor. And I'm like, if, if I don't have the gift to be a pastor, you're going to let me go out and screw up a church, you know, so I can go teach people. And um, it's just, you get caught up in the system. So finally, you know, I'm in my 60s. And finally, my dream came true where the college said, can you teach? And yeah, I was born to teach. So it's like, you know, you work all your life and the system institution forces you into a little thing there. And I'm opening up a whole can of worms. But toward the end of my life, I finally retired. I could say I retired as a professor, which sounds better to me than I retired as a pastor, which I am. But yeah, pastoring, I was good at it, but yeah, it wasn't my thing. That's not what I was born to do, you know? It, it sounds weird for me from four degrees in theology and all the church, five, six church plantings and everything else. But yeah, I was just staying busy, you know, using my education to do something. Anyway. Yeah. No, yeah. You, you're a nonstop. It's my story. <laughs> no, it, it just goes to show that it's never too late. You know, people think you need to achieve your dreams by the time you're 30. And it's like, if you haven't, you've failed. And it's like, no, P 
People, yeah. I think, put so much emphasis on youth. And obviously that is a time to get a lot of stuff done. But if you do live a long life, your youth is only a small part of that. Yeah. And you know what? I brought all of that, for better or for worse, into the classroom. And the students were, I made that available to them, you know, and you could see how it all made sense at that point. You know, I came for this moment and the kids are enriched for it. So hopefully they will be better citizens, better human beings because of it, you know. Yeah, and I've been a witness to that. And you know, um, you know, I just put up a post uh, yesterday for for uh, well, not yesterday according to this podcast, but <laughs> you know, and your students still comment on social media. They still adore you and love you. And I, you know, it's funny to me, kids that are younger than me that know you as Professor Leach. You know, it's it's really interesting to see that you have changed a lot of lives. And I guess for me too, I I saw a real shift in you when you started to learn and meet people from different walks of life and to deal with your students, speak on, if you would, how that changed your perception, your worldview. And, you know, I saw a real shift when you became a professor. Obviously you were happy. It it felt like you were more in your comfort zone, but interacting with different people from all walks of life and religions and orientations, how did that change you, if any? Yeah, well, I I had that a little bit in my education for people all over the world, but it was people all over the world learning theology together. That's one thing. But when you walk into a classroom, now this is a private Christian college, but it was kind of an exclusive Christian college. So people from all over the world would come there to get their feet wet in America, so to speak. And so I, I had to teach theology. So they had to take theology. So they're forced to be kind of exposed to Christianity. So I had to, without offense being offensive and saying, you know, your religion sucks. It's like you have, you learn more about their religion and their culture, and you bring that into the classroom and say, I understand where you're coming from, kind of. But it was like atheists from China, Hindus from India, uh, Buddhists from the East, and uh, let's see, Muslims with the head coverings and everything else from different parts of the world. And so they're all there in your classroom and you have to talk about Christianity and Jesus and bring that to them and help them understand that. So you hone your own skills and you go deep to learn about the other person. And that's what this is all about. It's the other person. It's not me. And a lot of times professors think it's all about me, you know? No, it's about them. And even the institution sometimes are like, guys, you don't give a crap about students, you know? So you, you bring the students in to help them understand that you love them unconditionally, where they're at. And I would say, I'm not here to change who you are. I just want to rock your worldview to be more aware so we can get some world peace here instead of blowing each other up. You know, so I'd make jokes like that, but I was, I was serious. Yeah, I'm serious. You need to understand what each one of you are thinking and how you look at life so that you can all get along. That's what this is all about. Well, if we could only have that in society, (laughs) right? Hello. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool as well because you've obviously seen what ego can do to the kind of hippie revolution. um, And you've seen what bureaucracy does, you know, and and how that can be reductive. And and so if you remove those two things and, as you say, make it about connection, communication, understanding, sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. And because it's like... I, today, I think it's even worse than the 60s because we were fighting against 
something that was meaningful and you know but now it's like darkness has invaded every avenue and truth is no longer it's all subjective truth and you don't know who to trust anymore Th this whole culture has changed drastically in a short period of time and it's really much worse than the 60s much worse yeah i mean we don't give a crap about the wars and the people dying, the hundreds of people dying, thousands of people being slaughtered in other countries. And the media only cares about, well, what's Justin Bieber doing today or whatever. <laughs> Whoever, whoever's on the new menu or anything else, you know? Yeah. Come on, guys. And back in the 60s, it was like we, we had underground truth, exposing the truth, exposing the darkness. And now it's like we don't know what it is anymore. We've lost everything. Yeah, and it's all been politicized too, and you don't know who to believe anymore with what spin yeah. and what agenda. It's it's a lot. It is a lot, and I think this past you know year and a half or so showed us the the craziness that can ensue through through uh, mainstream media and the polarization. Yeah, we're in we're in a a pretty rough spot in the world. Sure. We, could we could definitely use some more uh, understanding. And um, well, it it happens like this, you know. It's like last week I was at a. I was at a brewery talking to a bunch of guys and I was just talking about being a man, being a real man, being a man to other people, you know, just don't be afraid of who you are. Don't let the society feminize you. Be a real man and be a man to your children, to your wife, to the culture, to everybody around you. Just step up, you know, be who you need to be. Society will be better off with it. So yeah. 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 What a journey, man. What a journey. Um, you know, so where do you find yourself these days? Do you do you find peace with where you are? Are you are you um, do you feel unfulfilled? Are there things that you feel like you still want to do? You know, I know you, to me you are a brilliant writer. Anytime you've sat down and, and written anything, um, would you ever consider writing about your life or putting any of this what we've talked about into into book? Oh, Is that so even on your radar? So many people have told me I need to write my life story, and I'm like, hmm, I don't, I don't know. To like from a from me inside, you know, what's who cares, really? <laughs> people say they care. Okay, but I'll write the book and nobody will buy it. So maybe make a movie about it. Go ahead, try. But um I, I'm just uh, I've just kind of become retired and it's nice being where I'm at right now because I'm in America, good old boy country with the hillbillies and rednecks and stuff, and everybody has guns and everybody goes hunting and eats the, their food. And it's like, yeah, this is cool. I mean, if America goes to shit in plain English, you know, I'm in the middle of it. You know, I mean, I don't hunt. I did. We do have a. Your mother and I did buy a couple of guns, but we didn't right. even use them. Yet. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's. Uh, I'm enjoying retirement. And I get to lecture once in a while. I do a study here and there. I'm going to do a big seminar in October for a bunch of guys, regional guys, and uh, stuff like that. That's all. I just want to. And you know, I'm involved in this. I was assigned this church to help them through this transition. Stuff like that. Making the difference like this, rather than trying to grab the world by the nuts and you know make a difference there. Yeah, it's interesting because I've I've had a similar experience with with this shift the past 16 months and Matt and I doing this podcast, I've been able to like really see things differently on this, you know, two-on-one interaction versus being on a stage in front of thousands of people. Yeah. There's there's something very fulfilling about having these conversations, you know, hearing guests story about their lives. It really has shifted me 
and and helped me grow in ways that uh, you know a, a music musical career and touring just can't do. It's such a it's such a separation. I'm sure you could attest to this being from the pulpit or um, you know maybe even in front of a classroom. It's hard to connect with all of those people when you narrow it down to just a handful of people. That connection is so much stronger. You get so much more out of it. That reciprocation and to me that's this podcast has done that for me completely and it's changed changed me and i I love this this forum this is great and see that's the thing that you and matt are doing something where i don't know what kind of effect i i know what a kind of effect i had in the classroom i get the instant feedback or whatever or the students i've had students come and visit me here but um you don't know the ripple effect of the positive energy that you're putting into these people because they may turn around and change somebody else's life you know, so you guys are like, you're seeing this, okay, but you don't know what's going to happen when somebody else shares it with somebody else and somebody else. And so you want to make sure that you keep that, and it's even with you on stage. Okay, you're not reaching an individual, but you're reaching masses of people, and you don't know. You've had that feedback where somebody say, your lyrics changed my life. Well, there you go. That's the moment you live for, rather than some satanic jerk you know change that blah blah whatever you know <laughs> yeah it is profound and we're already feeling it and yeah and we've had a couple of listeners on and and you know they've they've all been obviously fans of, of jesse's music first and foremost and when they get the chance to sit down and just talk like we've done you know i guess it shows that we're all just people we're all just equal um and just treat everybody like you want to be treated yourself isn't it with love yeah, and respect exactly. and yeah. compassion and be intentional you know in your relationships be intentional don't be superficial you know and be real young people today want truth and they want realism and they want to be they want to know what you think and they'll respect you for it even if they disagree with you so we, we're selling this generation short because uh they they want to know you know be honest with them come on be real yeah, being real. It's it's a revolutionary thing these days, isn't it? <laughs> Sadly. I just think I just want to jump in as we approach the end here and just say for what it's worth, um everybody I think is a product of their upbringing and, and the, you know, lessons that you're either directly taught or that you pick up from those that raise you. And Jesse's been such an amazing friend to me and a, you know, a figure of inspiration and strength and you know, just a fine example of how to conduct yourself in the world. I've always looked to him as that. And I can see from chatting to you today that so much of what he holds dear and believes in and, you know, the way he does carry himself, I can see that a lot of it has come from what he's learned from you. So I just want to say, well done, Dad. <laughs> you raised a good lad. La familia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to, to be able to have that relationship. And, and also to see, you know, him not just as a mentor, but a friend. And I know a lot of people will go through that in their transition into adulthood, and which I'm still working on in my 40s. Um, but yeah, you find you find yourself in a different place. And I've some of the most profound conversations I've had in my entire life are just one on one with him. You know, he came up here uh, about a month ago or so, and you know, we had this really deep chat by the fire, by the fire, stoke the fire. Exactly. And, and it was one of those moments where like, you know, I, I gained some more wisdom and that's, I think that's what it's all about. We, you know, you don't have to necessarily respect the, the older generation because, you know, you have to earn respect, but 
my parents thankfully have earned my respect. And because of that, that exchange that we have of, of wisdom and experience, I've learned a great deal uh, for, for to add on to who I am and to help me in my journey. And they've always been there. You know, when I, and not everyone can say that, you know, I, I go through rough times and if I'm in a really rough spot, I know I can reach out and get sound advice. So that's a beautiful thing. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for everything. You're a, you're a wonderful man and a, a shining example of, of fatherhood. Aww, and you're a beautiful son. <laughs> and Matt, we love you too. Anytime you want to come over the house. <laughs> hey, you need a place to live? Can I come be up? No, 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 not any, no. I'm, I'm over that, man. I'm a retired. No. <laughs> Can't live in the basement because you don't have a basement. So <laughs> Exactly. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, I'm, we could have done this for hours, but I like I like the, how the natural flow just brought us to where we are now, and it's been great. An honor. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I hope I hope it makes a difference in other people's lives too. Yeah. Is there uh, before we let you go? Is there anything you want to plug? Do you have anything going on you want people to know about? Or any part you know w- wisdom He's that like, you want nah. to share that can yeah, help party. us? There you go. Oh man, put me on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Off the top of my head, no. No, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Just good luck. No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't say luck. I would say, like you said before, you just got to treat people like human beings, you know? And I, I, I know you don't have much time, but I do this thing in the classroom where I, go, I tackle race. And I said, you know, it's all about the melanin in our skin. It's not about race. It's not, there's no white, black, brown. I mean, there's no white, black, what's that? Christian song, yellow, black, and white, red and yellow, black, and white. There's no such thing. You don't see people those colors. And we use those labels to discriminate and divide, you know? So that's part of my lecture in class. We're all brown in some form or another, melanin. It's all about the melanin, man. Yeah, go with that. Well, we all come from the same family. We are all connected for sure. Exactly. No, that's a whole other story right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I know the world the world needs more love and compassion and understanding for sure. Yeah, and that's not a cliche. That's just deep stuff that we should embrace more. Yeah. Well, it's crazy, like, right? That love love and kindness is is a again a revolutionary way to be these days. It's it's a crazy world we live in. So. Yeah, and that's that, that slogan I've seen on t shirts, love is love, and as a philosopher, so that's, that's bullshit. Love is love. <laughs> God is love. God. You know, he's love. You're yeah. not. Love is not. We'll never understand real love. We, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to the grave wondering what love actually is. You know, we try to grasp what it is, but we'll never, we'll never touch it. What's you know? the key lessons you've learned as a dad, as being a parent? What's fatherhood taught you? Uh, presence. Be present mm. and engaging in their lives. And let them be the people they are designed to be, you know, with guidance, of course, rules, but yeah, yeah. Presence is a big thing. Be present. And that's just for anybody, not just for dads, but be present in people's lives, you know? Yeah. yeah beautiful. Yeah. Well, with your grandkids too, you know, now you're a grandfather, you've been a grandfather. That's a whole other thing too. And I love that the fact that you live near them and they're able to spend time with their grandparents, you know, that's a be- and you're able to spend time with them. It just continues the, the life lessons. And I'm sure that's a whole other topic we can go off on. I'm sure where you've learned yeah, probably yeah. a lot from just being a grandfather with them, but um, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. 
It's my pleasure. I'm blessed. Thank you. It's been lovely getting to know you, mate. Matt, yeah, it's not over yet, man. Yeah, we got time. <laughs> Conversation never ends. It's always know, ongoing. Some, someday we have to have yeah. pints together, all of us. We will, for sure. Oh, yeah, it's a good scar. Single malt. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get around the fire in Woodstock and toast to life. Awesome. Right. Yes. And go jump naked in the in the river. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to do that today. I'm no, down. no, no way. It's not going <laughs> to all right. Love you, Dad. Thanks for coming. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.